Uh, we have been going through Luke, and we should cover pretty well the ninth chapter tonight. We noted to start with that of the of the four records of the life of Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is unique in the sense that it's the only one written by a Gentile. Luke was a doctor, uh, a companion of the Apostle Paul, and he writes as a historian uh, and one who has talked with other eyewitnesses and examined the materials. In fact, if you want to hold your place there and back up to the first chapter and notice the way he... Um, introduces his material. First chapter, the first uh, four verses, uh, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so Luke, uh, by the way, the word Theophilus is a Greek word and obviously uh, somebody of some prominence that he's writing to. But um, Luke uh, apparently is aware of many other <coughs> documents that are floating around at this time. Uh, he's also had contact with the apostles and those that were eyewitnesses, and then having read these sources and talked with others, uh, he compiles this account, and he mentions that it would be in an orderly way uh, of the uh, three Gospels that we refer to as the Synoptic Gospels because of their similarity in material covered, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Luke is the only one that's really in, in uh, near-perfect chronological order. Uh, Matthew writes in topical order. Uh, Mark does not follow a perfect chronological order. Luke does, uh, as a typical Gentile writer, writes in uh, chronological order. And so, therefore, he serves as a good one to use as a base and to fit the other two around him when they cover the, the same materials. Beginning with the uh, uh, ninth chapter, we've noted several things so far about Jesus. And that is, uh, first of all, that those who did come to believe in him did not come to believe in him because of any prejudice in his favor. Uh, rather, it was the opposite. Uh, everybody that met him was biased against him. Uh, even the Jew that was looking for a Messiah uh, had, a, as a result of the religious leaders among them at this time, many interpretations of the Messiah uh, and one st very strong view of a Messiah to come, but really it was, it was not like what Jesus was. Uh, they were looking for somebody to come and to uh, set up a physical kingdom and to reign in Jerusalem, uh, and they thought that they were God's special people and they would be, other people would be blessed only as this Messiah reigned over Israel. And when Jesus came, he taught the equality of all men, Jew and Gentile, uh, he taught that the uh, kingdom was one that was worldwide and that the subjects of the kingdom, it had, had absolutely nothing to do with your race or whether you were Jew or Gentile or male or female, but rather the condition of your heart. 
and that people who responded to that, me that message everywhere would be a part of this kingdom. Well, this whole message of the oneness of uh, Jew and Gentile uh, and also the fact that, uh, that who he was was something different than what they actually expected. And so the very people that wind up being witnesses for him uh, were individuals that were biased against him. Uh, in fact, when it comes to the point where we'll see with even Peter that he will deny him uh, at the time they come to take him away to execute him. Okay, then keep that in mind then that Luke is a, writes as a Gentile historian. Uh, the, he writes as one who was converted from a background that was not looking uh, to a Messiah, and especially one like Christ, and that the various people who are going out in this chapter here to proclaim the message were people who were initially in unbelief and were only convinced by the, the evidence itself. In other words, uh, at this time, there is no such thing as somebody who is brought up as a Christian or who believes because that's the way he's been brought up. Nobody's been brought up this way, and the only ones that believe will be those that are convinced by the evidence itself. Uh, Mark, let's start with you and start reading, uh, you know, just uh, read, stop at a comfortable spot, and then Mark, if you want to follow, and in several ways. I don't know the background of, you know, of everybody here, and keep in mind we're jumping right into the, uh, the middle of something. But obviously that uh, uh, you have several things that are happening here that are beyond anything that we've ever seen or experienced. I mean, it's obviously not a common day experience with us that people are healed in some miraculous way of uh, diseases. And that's recorded in there. And then also you have a, a transfiguration where Moses and Elijah, Moses has been dead about 1,400 years, Elijah about 900 years, and they appear and have a conversation with Christ. And then you have uh, uh, some very strong statements uh, by Christ telling them to go in and to proclaim this good news uh, that the kingdom of God has come. Uh, if they don't want to hear it, shake the dust off your feet and, and move, move on to the, the next town. There seemed to be an urgency to, to get this out. Uh, you also see that uh, some of the ideas that they had about uh, who Jesus was. Uh, in verse 19, uh, some said he was John the Baptist. Well, John has already been killed by Herod. And so Herod himself is concerned. He's wondered about this individual. Uh, Elijah, of course, is, has been gone for 900 years, or one of the prophets uh, had come back to life. But they had all kinds of things, and all of this is, is obviously, you, don't, you wouldn't think that of any normal human being, that they, that they are somebody that you know uh, is dead. And so there's a statement of miracles, the, the guess of the people that uh, this person was somebody that had already been dead. Uh, there was the transfiguration with uh, Moses and Elijah. And then you have this statement in verse 35 uh, where it says, A voice said, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him, that God identifies him uh, as his son. Well, now, if you were reading this, uh, that ninth chapter, and you did not have a background of having been brought up in this, I don't know about you, but uh, that would sound pretty hard to believe to me. You know, that's, uh, I mean, that's definitely not part of, of my experience in life. 
And so then we look at it and we say, well, why do we believe something like that? I mean, after all, there have been a number of things said there that are contrary to the experience that any of us have had. At least I've, I've never had an experience of somebody seeing somebody healed in a miraculous way. I've, I've known of claims, but when I've observed them, it always looked fake to me. I haven't, I haven't seen anything that uh, was obviously that way. And so all of that is there. And so we go and we look at it and we say, well, why do we believe this uh, if we believe it? Okay, let's first of all look at it as in this part here. Remember, we're reading a small section of a, of a big hole. The first thing we know is, what about Luke? Does Luke believe it? Okay, it's, uh, it's pretty obvious that the author of the material, who is not just any dodo, he's a, he's a doctor, he's a well-educated person. In fact, uh, Luke is written in the syntax and the vocabulary of a very well-educated man of the first century. And so uh, here is a Gentile doctor who does believe it very strong and is writing it for the stated purpose that other people may know the certainty about. Well, that doesn't prove it's so, but again, it's pretty interesting that you've got an intelligent, well-educated individual that believes it. And not only this, according to Luke, there were a lot of people that claimed to be eyewitnesses of this, eyewitnesses of this type thing who also believed it. Okay, that didn't prove it, but we at least know it's, it's being written from that standpoint. Now, we look at it, uh, let's look at Jesus and there are these claims about him. And so let's look at it from the standpoint that uh, the miracles never took place. Okay? That uh, Luke's wrote them, they never took place. The miraculous didn't. And here we have Jesus making these claims. So wipe out the miracles. Why does anybody believe Jesus? Claims to be the Son of God? claims that he has come to set up a kingdom here on this earth, that he is the Messiah of God. Uh, and here is, a, here is a Gentile doctor that's been convinced. Uh, here is 12 disciples uh, right at the beginning. Uh, it said in verse 1, he called the 12. Here are 12 people that are going to put their life on the line. In fact, look at, what he, look at the strong statements here, in verse, starting with verse 23. Uh, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. What good will it be for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very self or his own soul? And if anyone's ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory of the Father, the Father and the holy angels. Okay, the question is, wipe out all the miraculous. Why did these people, because they did, it's a matter of historical fact, separate from the, uh, the New Testament. They did believe it. So why would they believe these things about Jesus? Uh, is there any money being offered for anybody to believe in him? Does he have any high positions to offer? Any prestige to offer? In fact, what happened to you when you began to believe in him at this time. Okay, it was persecution uh, uh, from the Jews. Uh, why were the uh, Jews so reluctant to believe in him, even with the claimed miracles? Most of them were rejecting. 
I don't understand if you're asking why would they want to believe him mm -hmm. or what was it about him that was compelling. Right, and I'm saying that when we read this, you and I didn't see those recording so miracles. why should we believe it? Uh-huh, and, and, and everything there is uh, beyond our experience. I mean, here's a guy that's been dead for 1,400 years, another one for 900, and they appear and have a conversation. Uh, here are a lot of people that are healed in a miraculous way. Uh, here's a voice that comes out of heaven and says, this is my son. Uh, none of us have ever had any experiences at all like that. And you just read it. And so the question is, uh, uh, my natural inclination with no more than just that chapter is skepticism. In other words, uh, that it, uh, though, because everything there is, is beyond my experiences, uh, you know, with, with life. So then we're beginning to look at, if we do believe it, why? And so we pointed out, uh, starting that obviously the man who's writing the material, uh, who is an educated and an intelligent individual and is writing as a historian, he obviously believes it. Now, don't prove it so, but it's interesting that he believes it. Then we looked at there are 12 apostles here who believe it so strong that they're willing to put their life on the line. And we looked at Jesus and, and we see that he wasn't offering riches and he wasn't offering prestige. And he was demanding sacrifice and said that they would have to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. Uh, if they were ashamed of him and his words, that, uh, that uh, he would be ashamed of them when he came in his glory with the Father. Man, that's a strong statement. So uh, the point is that on the one hand, we were not there and we didn't see that. But I'm saying, if you wipe out the miracles, we're trying to say, what if they're not so? Then the question becomes, how do we explain their belief at this time? Okay, so we're saying that we didn't see the miracles. And so we said, why even began to believe in the miracles? And I'm saying that, that we look, it is a historical fact that these 12 apostles will put their life on the line and they will sacrifice and deny, and they'll go to their death uh, in, in proclaiming this information. It is a historical fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all written by people that were willing to put their life on the line, and, and they did believe. And so these are historical facts that these people did, and they came to believe something, not because of money, not because of prestige, not because they were biased in favor of it, uh, from childhood, because the, the opposite is true. They were biased against it. Uh, the, 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 to the Gentile, you're saying that all your gods are false, and the, the God of Israel is the true God. Well, that's obviously he's biased against that. To the Jew, you're saying your misconceptions, your, your, your idea of the Messiah are misconceptions, that uh, the Messiah is not going to be somebody who exalts Israel and uh, teaches that the Israelites are superior to others. Uh, that, that, that's, and he's, he's not going to be somebody just exactly like Moses, who's just an, or like David, who's going to be a great king that leads us to overthrow Rome. And keep in mind, the kind of kingdom that they were looking forward to, Israel was conquered by Rome. Rome ruled the world at this time. So they were looking for a Messiah to lead them in rebellion against Rome, and they would overthrow Rome. Well, Jesus didn't show any inclinations to want to fight. 
and 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 not only did he he didn't he didn't even teach that Roman Rome was a problem. He said the problem is your own personal sin. That the problem is not Rome. That, that you've got the same problems they got. And that that sin. So I'm saying that we're trying to say that without miracles, how do these people believe when everything was against it? They were biased against it. Everything in their background uh, stood stood against him. Uh, they're going to have to put their life on the line and make tremendous sacrifices, and yet they believe it. And so then the question becomes, how do we explain that kind of belief without the miraculous on their part? No. In other words, now that still doesn't prove the miraculous, but it, what does it prove from their standpoint? Proves that they believed it. Prove they believed it, right. In other words, that uh, we still haven't proved it, but we have proved that they believed it. People don't go out and die for something that's not going to make them rich or prosperous or give them prestige, and they just go out and die for something because they, uh, because they think it's false. They obviously believe, believe it's so in, in order to do it. All right, that's why that even atheists and infidel uh, scholars who examine Christianity do not, con do not contend that these people were manufacturing lies about these miracles. They, th that is not their contention at all. The reason they don't contend it is because they put their life on the line. So they all acknowledge that they believed it was so. So if they believed it's so, but yet it's not so, what had to happen? Okay, had to be deceived. So the so so then when we look at it, there's no question that they believed it. You cannot explain their belief and what they underwent except they believed this. And those are tremendous claims. And and even atheist historians acknowledge that, that these people are not making up lies or anything like that. That they actually died for it. So the only possibility then is that maybe they were deceived. And so then what we have to do is, is look at these miracles in their context and look at some other evidences and all and look at it, is it the type thing where a person could be deceived or is it the type thing that they're either lying or telling the truth? That, uh, and what I mean by that is that John could tell me that uh, he saw somebody at 12 o'clock at night uh, or, or, and it turned out not to be so, and I wouldn't necessarily think John was lying because anybody can be deceived at, you know, in, at 12 o'clock at night, or he could tell me several other things that uh, you know I could realize that, well, that's not that concrete. But if John tells me that he uh, talked to somebody and shook hands with them and they had a meal together, he's either lying or telling the truth. That's too concrete. And you're either lying or telling the truth on, on that kind of thing. So then what you want to look at then, at these miracles, is that are they of such a nature that somebody could be deceived, or are they so concrete that one either has to be lying or telling the truth? Well, if they are so concrete that one either has to be lying or telling the truth, then we've got problems again because we've already acknowledged that uh, even atheist scholars say they're, these guys are not lying. They, they really believe it so. 
And so that once you get to the point then where you see the concreteness in it and then their belief, then that becomes strong evidence for it having happened. And keep in mind, we're still looking at it as part of a whole. We, we haven't examined the whole thing. And so we're, we're like a, a detective who's looking at evidences and we have a certain body of evidence, but it's not conclusive. And so that's all we've got right here is, is a certain piece of evidence, but it, it's obviously not conclusive at this point. And, it, it, and it, by the way, was it conclusive to the apostles here that Jesus was the Son of God? Wasn't, wasn't. What, what happens later on that lets us know that it definitely was not conclusive to them? one point that after he rose that they were walking along talking that he came to them and that he, he had to explain to them even after he had died and rose from the dead exactly what had happened okay. before they realized it. Okay, that was the two on the road to Emmaus that, and he, he, they were very, he referred to them as slow to believe. Um, what did uh, Peter do when they were going to kill him? Denied him and uh, uh, when the women went to the tomb and came back and told the disciples that he had risen, how many of the twelve apostles believed those women? Said they were crazy women. Okay, they were crazy. They mocked them. Uh, right. By the way, on that statement by Mark, um, in the first century, a woman's testimony didn't even stand in court. I mean that it was it was Christianity that will change the matter there. And so they said, a bunch of crazy women <laughs> seeing things. And so they ran out there, and then we had some crazy men, right? <coughs> but the point is that uh, even at this point, uh, what they really see about Jesus at this point is somebody that's special in some sense, but they don't understand it. And so that's why you read these statements like when it says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, and he says, some say you're John the Baptist risen from the dead, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Moses. They knew that there was something special about him, that maybe Moses has come to life again, or Elijah has, has, has come again, or one of the other great prophets, but they still didn't know what they had. All right, Peter even will confess him as the Messiah, but turn right around later and deny it because he wasn't the type of Messiah that Peter was looking forward to. So at this point, I'm saying, as we look at it from the evidence standpoint, not even the apostles are fully persuaded. Is, are atheist historians pretty much in agreement that these aren't fictional accounts? Oh, yeah, you have... Uh, I know people who believe that this isn't historical writing. Okay. You have... Uh, what happened is that uh, for years there was no question whatsoever. Okay, as far as the historicity and things of this nature. And then in the age of uh, rationalization, going into the 1700s, it started in France and in Europe, you had the challenging of everything that was not empirical or that could not be evaluated with a, in a scientific way. And so they began to challenge, and so what they would do, it wasn't that they threw out the historicity, but they, they threw out all the miraculous. For example, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson was a deist and he believed in the historicity of Christ and these events and all and he simply went through and cut all the miraculous out. But the historicity itself 
uh, he actually believed. There is uh, no, you might have somebody that will just say it or anything, but there's no historian that I'm aware of that, uh, atheist or otherwise, that denies the historicity of Jesus. That uh, You have, for example, outside of these writings, you've got Tacitus, a Roman historian of the first century, who speaks of Jesus as having been executed by Pilate. And you've got uh, uh, Trajan and another Roman emperor and Pliny writing letters back and forth trying to determine what to do with Christianity because it's spreading and eating up the, the Roman Empire. And they identified as having started with this Jesus who we executed, and now they claim that he's alive. In fact, right after that event, you've got a letter that goes out by uh, Tiberius ordering people to quit tampering with tombs. And they put severe penalty on anybody that was tampering with tombs. But he was real disturbed at the way Christianity was spreading. And it all went back to whoever tampered with that tomb. And so they actually passed a law. And that isn't, that's part of the Roman record that we actually have. Uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes of John the Baptist, uh, speaks of John getting his head cut off by Herod. Uh, and uh, Josephus mentions Christ and that he deals in these particular events. And the same characters that you read in here, like Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and, and Gamaliel and some of these other characters, you read them from other historians also. But no, the, the historicity, uh, I don't know how, no matter whether it's a person, a believer or unbeliever, he can't really get away from the historicity of the events. He may say that, I believe the people were deceived by the miraculous, and that uh, after Jesus died, these stories were written in later on, or something like that, concerning the miraculous. But the historicity of it, uh, he can't get away from it. I mean, uh, after all, this is uh, 1993 A.D., the Latin abbreviation of the year of our Lord, that all of civilization is thinking of time before and after the birth of Christ. So the historicity is established. What, what the scholars do is they'll sit down and they determine uh, what they're going to believe and what they're going to not believe. And what they wind up doing, the ones that are atheists or infidels, is that they just simply reject the miraculous. But they reject it, not necessarily by examining it, but they approach it with the bias, there is no God. Well, if there is no God, obviously that Anything dealing with the miraculous cannot be so, and so they, they just go through and whack it out. And that's why... Based on, on uh, an experience that you don't, you know, on the fact that it's not part of your experience. Right, right. Going back to David Hume and, uh, the, and, the, and the treaties against the miraculous that, uh, that since it was not part of your experience, that even if it were so, you could not believe it. And so that's why I said that uh, when we look at it, you was not there, you didn't see it, but what you can see historically and factually is that these people did believe it so strong they put their life on the line. And then the question becomes, wipe out the miraculous and what caused them to believe that strong? And so then we get back to the fact that, that even atheist historians acknowledge in that, they are, that the very fact they put their life on the line showed that they believed it and they were honest and sincere, but they had to be deceived. So then we began to look at this and say, is this is, and if this is very concrete stuff they're writing, then they can't, they're either lying or telling the truth. But then if they're lying, we've got a problem. Why in the world do people invent and lie 
and go out and give up their life for it. You know, and, and they're, they're not, people lie for prestige or money or something, but not for something like that. Okay, any, uh, uh, by the way, another thing that happens here that is so contrary to their biases, this transfiguration in the 28th uh, through the 36th verse there, can you see anything there other than the transfiguration itself that ought to fly in the face of every devout Jew around? I was just going to say, I don't really understand what's going on there. I mean, I, I don't dare make it so nice. I, I personally don't see what what the purpose of it is. I never have understood, you know, he talks about, like, for example, in that verse 27, he says, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. I've even had, you know, explanations that the transfiguration was like a glimpse of the kingdom of God, even. You know, but what, I don't really understand what the significance of it is and what it means. Okay, now the part there, beginning with verse 28 through, the, we'll, we'll look at that, what you just mentioned on the, the thing, uh, Mark. But is there something there that, if you were a devout Jew, ought to fly right in your face? I mean, it would, it would be contrary to everything you could even think. That someone would be, we would listen to anyone besides Moses. Okay. He was the lawgiver. Moses was the great lawgiver to Israel. And when the Messiah came, uh, he wasn't here to supersede Moses uh, or the prophets, but he was here like the son of David, and he was going to lead Israel in a revolt against Rome. And keep in mind that Israel's captivity goes all the way back to when the Babylonians defeated them and then after them, the Medo-Persians, and then after them, Greece, and then after that, Rome. And so going all the way back to 605 B.C., uh, Judah has known nothing but captivity. And they're looking forward to a Messiah that will come. And remember, David was the greatest king in the history of Israel. And when he became king, he defeated and subjected all the nations around him and pushed Israel's borders to their farthest extent. And so now... The Jewish prophets had spoke of a great Messiah that would come like David, and that when he came, the, this, this righteousness and, and reign of Israel would extend to the whole earth. Well, they interpreted that, that when the Messiah come, that, that he would lead them, and they would revolt against Rome, and they would set up this kingdom here on this earth. But their great lawgiver was always Moses, and Elijah was looked on... In fact, Elijah see, is, is, was looked on as such a great prophet because he was so great that he didn't die a normal death. And, and so he was just exalted that God was pleased with him over, over all the prophets. Well, then in this context, though, I'm saying that if you're a devout Jew and you're trying to figure Jesus out, here you have a, a, a transfiguration there and you, you're, you see Moses and Elijah but there's something more than that. Uh, that wasn't really the problem to the Jew. See, the Jew believed that your body contained your spirit and that at death your, your spirit went into the Hadean realm. 
and, uh, and he believed in a resurrection to uh, come. But so that, that part's no problem to the Jew. The problem to the Jew is the fact that Moses and Elijah have to take a back seat to Jesus. And so uh, this is the thing. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And then the disciples kept this to themselves, and they told no one what they had seen. When Matthew records the same event in the 17th chapter, he records that Jesus told them not to say anything about this until after the resurrection. And of course, they didn't really understand that uh, in, the, in the ninth verse of Matthew 17. But what would happen had they stood up right here and began to proclaim that this Jesus is greater than Moses and the prophets? Okay, they, they would it had been stopped before it got started, wouldn't it? That, uh, and we're, we're noting, though, that from the standpoint of the, the belief here, there has to be some exceptionally strong evidence that causes these Jews to believe. Because so much that's happening is flying in the face of everything they do believe. Uh, that here Moses is being uh, told to take a back seat. Moses and the prophets take a back seat to Jesus, that he stands over and above them. Well, that was blasphemy to the Jew, and yet he's been asked to believe it. He, he's also being asked to believe that uh, we're not going uh, to go out and whip Rome. We're going to go out and tell people to repent of their sins. And there's going to be a lot of embarrassment, a lot of shame, a lot of persecution, and yet, if you're not willing to take, take up your cross and do this, even to the point of losing your own life, you'll have no part in this kingdom itself. And yet they go out and do it. And what I'm trying to say there, it is, to my mind, before even going further, and we've got to go a lot further, it's impossible to understand the kind of faith these people have in embracing Jesus over Moses and Elijah, uh, and embracing this whole concept of the kingdom and the Messiah, uh, considering their Jewish background, it's impossible to even begin to understand that without absolute overwhelming evidence having been presented to these people. There's just, there's just no other uh, explanation that I can see for it. Uh, Mark, on what you were mentioning there, we could get off on that, I won't write now, but... Uh, were you talking about the uh, kingdom in verse 26? If anyone is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man, uh, when he comes in his glory of the Father and the holy angels, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God. He speaks of a judgment situation, but then some here would still be standing. Okay? This is true every time he deals with it. You can hold your place there and flip over to Mark 8, and where he deals with that same idea of his coming in judgment and yet in their lifetime. Mark 8 and uh, 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his Father with the glory of, his whole, of the angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste of death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Okay, he says the same thing in uh, Matthew, the 16th chapter. Every time you have the judgment situation identified in a time frame, 
it was always something that was going to take place in the lifetime of many of those people there. And as we move further, Luke will elaborate on this, and what he's going to identify this with is when uh, judgment takes place on Jerusalem, and the temple is destroyed, and the nation of Israel is, is done away with. That that and the judgment would would take place on there, and that and it would come about in the lifetime of these people. Of course, it would happen between sixty six and seventy A.D. So the kingdom of God coming with power has to do with. It's like this kingdom is going to overtake the old order and things like that. Yeah, they the kingdom came, and they proclaimed the message, and the majority of the Jews rejected it. And the majority of the Jews did everything they could to destroy it. And then at the end of that generation, uh, Rome, uh, Israel went to war against Rome. Rome destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And Old Testament Jewish worship came to an end. Uh, Judaism today is a religion. It's not a, it's not, there is no such thing as worship like they worshiped under the law of Moses. Uh, over the Jewish mosque in Israel now, uh, I mean, over that temple area exists a, a Jewish mosque. Uh, there's no sacrifices. A Muslim mosque, right. There's no sacrifices. There's no worship under the law of Moses. Uh, all of their records were destroyed. There's no Jew. Uh, people who call themselves a Jew today couldn't trace their lineage back to Abraham or to any of the 12 tribes if their life depended on it. There's no Levites, uh, you know, to constitute the priestly thing. So I'm saying it, it's just a named body of people that exist uh, for religious and cultural reasons, but it's not the uh, uh, it's not the the Jewish nation that we see here in the in the first century. That never exists again after the judgment on Israel by Rome. Any other uh, comments? Um, I got one other one here. And that verse uh, 21, where it says, Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. Mm -hmm. Okay. Is that because, I mean, why did he say that? I mean, you kind of went into it a little bit on the, you okay. know, why they shouldn't, the disciples go, shouldn't go and talk about Jesus being superior to Moses and Elijah. But I mean, you know, he, Peter confessed that, that Jesus, the Christ, was, you're the Christ of God. And he says, right. don't tell us to anybody. And, and I've always, you know, my inclination would be they should go out and tell people. But why, well, I mean, what? They were going to tell. In fact, in Matthew's account, they were told not to tell, but they were going to after the resurrection. Uh, what if they went out immediately and began to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God? And... Uh, and that he was superior to Moses and Elijah. What's going to happen? Okay, in fact, uh, that's what gets Jesus killed, right? When he identifies himself, uh, that that is, they, they actually kill him on the grounds of blasphemy. And so that's what gets him killed. Remember the statement in uh, John, when he speaks to the Holy Spirit coming, he says, I did not teach you all truth because you were not yet able to bear it and the Holy Spirit will guide you on into all truth that uh, you uh, you learn to add and subtract and multiply before you do long division and then you learn all your computations before you learn algebra and you learn algebra before you learn calculus 
And in the same vein, with every discipline, you have to have a certain foundation that sets you up for something else. And so at this point, they are in the process of learning themselves. And even up to the point of, of the happening of this, uh, when they actually kill him, they didn't understand it. And so they weren't ready to proclaim something, pardon me, they were not, were not ready to proclaim something they didn't understand or even fully believe. And had they proclaimed it, it would have simply got them killed. And, and Jesus himself was not, uh, he was pulling this information out of them. But keep in mind, when they come to this conclusion, it's because of what they have seen and heard. Uh, they have witnessed uh, miracle after miracle after miracle. Uh, they've listened to his teaching. Uh, they're cognizant of the fact that uh, some of the prophecies in the Old Testament are being fulfilled in him. And so then they are, they are coming to this conclusion. But it's still not ready to be proclaimed. And so it would be like uh, if you were going to study with an atheist, um, you wouldn't study with an atheist trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. I mean, he doesn't believe in God. And, and you wouldn't study with an atheist trying to prove the Bible is inspired of God. He doesn't believe in God. So if you're going to study with an atheist, you have to start with the evidences mm -hmm. for belief in God. And then, and then all the way along the way, in fact, I think Jesus is a good example to us on teaching that sometimes we make a mistake on. You take people where they're at and you just gradually lead them up to where you want them. And you don't just jump over. And, and here he's definitely telling them, warning them in a strict sentence to, to hold back with this information. Uh, you're not ready and they're not ready is what he's saying. If, if he had started proclaiming to be the Messiah very early on in his ministry, there were a lot of people in, in Israel that were looking for an opportunity to revolt against Rome too, the zealots and all. And, and so there were a lot of, been a lot of people that would have come to him with their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was going to be. And they did try to force him into a lot of that. Right. John records that they tried to take him by force and, yeah. and make him king. Uh, one theories of, 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 of the theories of, many, of some of the scholars is that when Judas betrayed him, keep in mind, Judas uh, is not a 100% terrible person that he's been portrayed. When Judas saw that they were actually going to kill Jesus, what did he do? You know, he, he he actually went back and threw the money at him, and uh, he didn't. Uh, he wasn't. Uh, uh, most scholars believe that Judas was trying to force his hand; that he was looking for the Messiah to lead them in revolt against Rome. He was getting very impatient, and so he just set the stage for them to take him. I mean, after all, he's seen Jesus perform miracles and do all kinds of things, and and he was ready to go. And you see a little bit of that thinking when they come to get. Uh, Jesus that and Judas has identified him. What does Peter do? Takes his sword. Gets his sword. He's ready to fight. That uh, Peter was still looking uh, for this kingdom to be restored to to Israel, and they were going to fight just like they did under David. So, like uh, uh, Mark said, they were not ready to go proclaim something that they had no full understanding of at all. Another uh, thing. Another thing I've heard. Uh, too, that, that sounds very reasonable about it. If you notice, he also told uh, when he healed people and stuff like that, he told them, don't tell anybody. You know, and if they confessed, you know, that he was the son of God and so on like that, he said, you know, don't tell anybody. 
And you notice one of the first things that they did was they went out and told everybody. Yeah. You know, and uh, in fact, you know, that probably got the word spread quicker than if he had said, go out and tell everybody. You know, the fact that he said, don't tell, you know, compelled them to go out and do it. Also, you're talking about as far as proclaiming himself. If you notice, he never actually, he never actually stated that he was the son of God. It was always proclaimed from someone else. Yeah. He will finally, when he finally identifies himself, it, it brings about his execution. That uh, when he is being, you know, at the very at the very end to make actually condemn him on blasphemy. Well, actually, there he doesn't actually too, because they ask him. They said, "Are you the son of God?" And he said, "Men say that I am." Yeah, but he uh, uh, even the understanding that Jesus was had come to over a period of time because he was emptied uh, and he actually grew up and developed and matured and had to be taught and studied uh, himself. And there, you know, you can get into a real thing as to where he came uh, to a full, you know, understanding of these things. By the way, what did, uh, according to the text, how did Jesus' mother and brothers feel about this? Okay. Well, they, didn't, um, they didn't believe him for, until they wrote the, their letters. Okay, right. Uh, at the time of his crucifixion, uh, James and Jude both were strong unbelievers and even challenged him to go up to Jerusalem and prove himself to the authorities. But uh, this was a strong statement. Uh, we, we just live in a society where we've been brought up with this concept of the Son of God. But I think if you had not been, that is a strong statement for somebody walking around in flesh, just like you and I are, and the claim is that uh, this is God in, incarnate. And so it wasn't something in what, that they just believed right away. And we see this as we go through the text. We don't see people just immediately buying into this. We find out everybody he came in contact with was skeptic uh, of all of the process. And he had uh, they, there was miracle after miracle, and there was still skepticism. And even after Thomas you know, was told that uh, after the resurrection, he said, I still won't believe unless I touch him myself and, and see him. So all we're saying is that, that we're trying to determine the truthfulness of, of, of these things about him. We were not there, but we can see that the people involved were not just a bunch of gullible people willing to believe anything, and yet they were going to wind up believing all of it and putting their life on the line. But they were skeptical all the way through, and they had to be thoroughly convinced by evidence before they, they bought into this. Okay, any other any other comment or observation that anybody has? Okay, let's notice uh, one more event here, because remember he says in the first part of the ninth chapter, he gave them authority to drive out demons, cure diseases, etc. So this miraculous power he's passed unto them. They, they've been told to proclaim this message, but just as these people didn't believe it without evidence, other people are not going to believe it without evidence either. So he gives them the ability to confirm the information. Okay, but notice this next event. Now, he gave them this authority, but notice the event itself. Uh, uh, who, were, who are we up to? Starting with verse 37 uh, through 45. Now, first of all, what can we see about uh, he has given them, according to the record, 
miraculous power, but what can we see about their exercise of the power that they've been granted? It's conditioned on their faith. Okay, it's conditioned on their faith in the power that he had given them, and that if they attempted with a lack of faith, uh, then it, it didn't work. All right, now, uh, another thing, I don't want to uh, get into this. We've talked about this somewhat before, and I don't want to get into it as a subject tonight other than to mention it. If you want to think about it, because we'll hit it again. Luke, Luke deals with it several times. Keep in mind when you read about uh, uh, demons being cast out, that at this time in history, and, and in fact, you can go all the way back through and read all the literature surrounding this. These people had no word uh, for the different, for mental illness, and or for a lot of the neurological problems. And anything uh, that a person exhibited that had to do with a misfunction of the mind was referred to as demon possession by them. If somebody was an epileptic, uh, he was possessed by a demon. Uh, if somebody stuttered, he was possessed by a demon. Uh, anything that had anything to do, if he was schizophrenic, he was possessed by a demon. And I'm saying that, that this is true in their entire setting. And so when you read this, that's at least one thing you have to keep in mind, that these people at this time, every single problem that anybody has that's tied in with something of the head, that the way they interpreted that uh, is that they were possessed. And by the way, it's not just in the first century. It goes way back before, and then it comes all the way down through the centuries, uh, all the way up into, a, in, in other words, it's a very modern understanding uh, that has led us to see some of these things as far as the mind and behavior. And so I'm saying there is a possibility that what you're reading there is, as demon possession uh, was simply uh, illnesses just like the other matters. But that was, their, that was their understanding of it. And keep in mind that, uh, by the way, we'll look, uh, there's not enough time to go into it. I, I can't remember how many of you here when we studied some of it before. But on your own, if you want to go back and read about Saul in the Old Testament, uh, you can see how that they identify him as being possessed by an evil spirit uh, when he does some things. And yet, if you read the whole thing very, uh, very carefully, you will see that uh, uh, this evil spirit can be driven away simply by playing music. And you can see it only comes on Saul when he gets real disturbed and paranoid and, and jealous of David. Uh, and then we can see that when he uh, reaches a point where he feels a certain way towards David, that then the music, he will not drive it away. In other words, it becomes very obvious that Saul's problem is, is in his head. And, and when they use the term evil spirit, that's their interpretation uh, of what the problem is. But the problem is really from within Saul himself. But anyway, the, we see that the power here, according to the text that was given to them, was one that could be exercised only on the basis of their faith because it had been granted. Now, a couple of things that we could see from that and apply to us. Anybody see any principles there that we could apply to, to us today as we read it? One thing is, I think, I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, but it, spe it specifically says that Jesus gave them, those 12 people, the authority. And so, if I hear somebody telling me that I can, I can move a mountain, you know, based on my faith, well... 
I mean, if Jesus has told me, Mark, you can move this mountain if you believe it, then I, will, I believe I can do it. I mean, in other words, I believe that if he's told me that, he's given me the power, and all it takes is me believing it, then I think that I can do it, you know. But if he hasn't told Mark, me, Mark, you can't, okay. you know. So you're making, obviously, that everybody didn't have the supplier right there, right? The way it looks to me, right. I don't think. It so. was just individuals, and then those individuals, based on their faith in him, could exercise it, and that's all that is, is claimed. Well, actually, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, and I still haven't seen any of this duplicated myself. Uh, that, uh, but even from the text, it's something that was granted to them and to those select individuals, and obviously there'd been no, no need to, to grant it to them if they already had it. And then uh, we also see it's conditioned upon their faith. And it makes you see that it's pretty hard for them to believe, wasn't it? When he told them that they had this authority, they obviously didn't believe it. I mean, they had a hard enough time believing some of the things he was doing. Much, much less believe they could do it too. So you began to see the doubt in their mind. And we also see something about faith right before this. Peter has just confessed Christ, hasn't he? And now he's being rebuked for his lack of faith. So we see that faith is an entity that is beheld by degrees. And a person starts out with an element of evidence that leads to an element of trust. And then that trust, based on the accumulation of evidence and experience with the evidence, can grow and, and grow. But at this point here, they obviously doubted the very thing they had and, and, and obviously did not work through them. Any uh, observations on that section or comments that anybody wants to make? Okay, let's pause there then and we'll pick up next time right about that 46th verse. It would be like you doing something for a, a child and you know that he doesn't have the ability to fully understand what you've done and so you're content yourself at this point with him just seeing that you did it and, and getting him to know that you can do this kind of thing. And, and then as a person matures and develops, there comes more explanation. Uh, the, it's, it's just, it's always interesting to me, the, you know, that uh, in read oh, another person that was interesting to me on this line too is Lamsa is a devout believer he comes from this background, you know, in Syria and all. And in his book, he points out that even to this very day, the things that you and I would call insane or a mental breakdown or a nervous breakdown or an epileptic and all, they still refer to these, or deaf and dumb, they still refer to these people as possessed by demons. Anything that is controlled by the mind and not operating right is demon possession to them, even to this day and it's been that way all through their history. So the point is that, in the, that when we read that in the text, we know from just our other writings that that's exactly what they believed, you know, on those things. You know, when we studied that, the only place in the New Testament has a problem is when Jesus healed the man and the demons went into her uh, well, again, the writer sees the pigs take off. 
you can't, by definition, you can't see the demon, right? We're talking about a spirit. So what he has seen is a, is a wild person. And then he's seen those pigs take off. I'm saying that is his interpretation that the, that the demon went in. Uh, and, and I'm saying, it, and even the person who has the problem, whatever the problem may be, it is his understanding that he's possessed by a demon. All that's really there is whatever the problem is. Well, that would explain everything he sees. Right. In other words, and, and can you imagine yeah, these pigs uh, with this wild guy? Uh, running, running around there, you know. That, so, uh, oh, okay. So, and the uh, and just like uh, the uh, did you see that thing on 60 Minutes uh, sometime back where they did a thing on the demon thing in the Catholic Church? Yeah, it's great. Uh, and it really made this uh, see the Catholic Church to this day teaches and believes you know, in demon possession, at least all the conservative Catholics. But their criteria was stuff that never happened anyway, like meditation and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But, but I'm saying that even with them, I'm, you can see the power of person's, uh, if you perceive something to be so, it'll affect you as if it were so, even though it's not. And in other words, if, if you go outside and and, and you think that stickle there's a snake, your heart's going to beat faster and it'll affect you the same way. Well, just like in that episode they had, here is this girl that has been exhibiting these behaviors, and she has been told that she's possessed by a demon. Well, she actually believed it. Well, then she went to acting out all these things, and of course they, and then when they do whatever they do, the demon leaves her. But then the question, why? She, it, it depends on her belief, really. If she really believes, if, if you, whatever you've got is in your head in the first place, and then somebody tells you that, that they can extract that, and you believe it, well, then belief got it in you in the first place, and belief got it in you. It seems like um, I always told, too, that these people who are modern day that... How are they controlled? Kind of and, and, and it's relieved by you Sure, and it's just like the same thing when you read about Saul. How in the world is music? What, what is that demon scared of music? You know, he, David plays a harp and everything. Well, what we would say today is he calmed his nerves. Saul was a lot tight, and the, and the harp music relaxed him. That's the way we would word it today. But then, what happens to old Saul? when he becomes convinced that David is going to try to take the throne from him, and David, uh, David then starts playing the music, and the demon don't leave, old Saul grabs a spear and goes after him. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think there's a better example in the Bible than that. There's a whole story there that you can see that Saul is paranoid, and he's jealous. And, and the interesting thing is, a lot of what we call the term mental illness is an inaccurate term. Nervous breakdown is inaccurate. When they say nervous breakdown, the next question is, what nerve broke down? All right, if you can help somebody by talking with them, then obviously it's not organic. You can't talk to a broken foot and get it well. So obviously, it's, so I'm saying that 
mental illness is an inaccurate term and nervous breakdown, it, those things or those behaviors are brought about by the way a person thinks. And if a person, all the world depression is, is if, if you, all of us get depressed every now and then, but if you just constantly think on whatever it is that's bothering you all the time, then you can send yourself into a state of depression. And the same thing with uh, that a lot of the other forms, if you walk around with hostility or bitterness or jealousy in your mind, it will take its toll on your mind. And, and there will be effects that will come out in, in, in various ways. But, uh, and they, we have names for all of that because we've studied it and, and we've, we're very precise in the way that we can deal with the human mind. But they didn't. And so they just looked at all of that, and, and the only conclusion they could come to is that the person was possessed. You know? But yeah, the, what you mentioned, Mark, that would definitely be a, it would be the possibility that I would lean towards myself. You couldn't prove either one, but either one would be a possibility, and that's what I would lean towards. Yeah, that, that, that would have been good to brought up. In fact, there are several things uh, that, you know, that there could have been some accommodation. I think uh, that uh, their concept of the uh, resurrection, the, you know, the bodily resurrection, he, he skirts it, uh, uh, he doesn't hit it. Uh, uh, head on, even what he says about the kingdom, he doesn't come out plainly. Uh, it, it's not until after Pentecost, you know. I mean, you've got him in Acts 1 saying, Are you now ready to restore the kingdom to Israel? And so he says these things to provoke thinking on their part. And he's really trying to get them to see this and arrive at a certain conclusion. But he doesn't come out and say it. And I think he's that all the way through, whether it's with the, uh, uh, the kingdom or the resurrection thing, I think he is accommodating uh, some things that they have in their in their mind and leading them up to a to a certain point uh, I believe it's a good lesson in even studying with others that uh, one of the I think one of the reasons we've talked on this before in evidences I really don't believe it's that you know we know as a church that uh, and there's a body of Christians were not evangelizing and converting people in this country like we did in the previous generation. And I don't believe it's because the people are any meaner, less spiritual, or anything like that. I believe that all that evangelization took place at a time when the majority of this population believed in and respected the Bible, and so the preaching of the Word had effect on their mind because they believed it was from God. And, and, they, and they were brought up having been read the Bible. Even people didn't go to church read the Bible. You know, like Lincoln didn't go to church. But man, don't tell him how many times he read the Bible and his speech was full of quotes on and everything, but yet he was not a churchgoer. Well, how many non-churchgoers do you know today that read and study the Bible? But yet in Lincoln's time, there would have been a number of educated people that, that they didn't have TV or anything like that that honestly had, Thomas Jefferson wasn't a Christian. He was a deist, but he had read the Bible. And, and you couldn't have been considered an educated person without having read the Bible, you know, back then. So they spoke to that audience. We today are speaking to an audience that outside of our own little fellowships and people that have been brought up in that, 
are not well read, not well studied, uh, have not had those evidences presented in any of the various ways, and we're trying to reach them with those same type messages. In other words, uh, what I mean, the same type, just the Bible says such and such. You got the eight. And it's not going to do the job. And I think that, uh, that, that until we, as a body of people, began to accommodate our teaching to the unbelief that's, and the skepticism, I don't think they, we will reach. And I believe anybody that does will find it successful. I think one of the most successful ministries in the country, or an individual person, is, is John Clayton's. Uh, you know, that uh, sometimes that follow-up is showing that several hundred people will be baptized, not as a result of his, his preach or anything in evidences, but as a result of studies that are set up from people that came to those, and it may have taken place in over a period of several years, you know. How do you deal with the, on the demon possession thing again, when the demons actually would acknowledge and proclaim Jesus as a God? Okay, first of all, Keep in mind, nobody can see a demon. By definition, it's a spirit. So what really spoke was the mouth of that person. And the and it was that individual that had come to recognize him. In other words, they had seen the miracles and all. And just as uh, the, you know, the you had the lepers and the blind and all that when Jesus walked by, they were hollering and clamoring to get at him because they had heard that, hey, this guy is healing people and everything. And so they were wanting, uh, you know, some of the benefits of that. And I think these people, just simply, all the information's coming out that, let's say, even, let's say that it was a real demon possession. Even if it was demon possession, a real demon that was, was in them, a spirit, it still would have to be a matter of interpretation to the onlooker because they couldn't see that spirit. And so they were they're interpreting by the evidences. It's just like even with Jesus being the Son of God. It is a matter of interpretation based on evidence because you obviously can't see, literally see God in him. You can only look at the evidences and then you have an interpretation. And so that all people could do is see that person throw himself into the fire or hear what he said or see him doing some crazy things and now he's in his right mind. All they were actually seeing and hearing was that individual and what come out of his mouth. And then whatever it was, it's, it had to be their interpretation. Okay, then that, um, in other words, there's arguments for it being literal possession. For example, one argument is that, uh, that um, uh, the best argument that I've heard was that, uh, that God allowed for that period of time uh, spirits uh, to, uh, to possess in order that Jesus might demonstrate his power over the spirit world. And it only happened for a short period of time. My problem with that is that when I look at history, and, and this material happens right here in about a 30-year, you know, in this span, well, about three and a half years where Jesus and then the first generation of the apostles, is the very things I see there, I see in the 400-year span between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then going all the way back to Saul, and then coming all the way through history. In other words, you don't just see it during that time frame you find this demon possession, and then in all pagan countries of the world or in all third world countries today, they all believe in demon possessions on the very things that you and I know as epileptic and, and diseases, and even in our own society, that uh, there are groups like 
the conservative Catholics and all that believe in it, where you and I would attribute a different name, you know, to the Dad, are you going to let these people I always, another, what, on my part, before I had read and studied all of this, uh, uh, Chuck, it was, it was always a part of the Bible that I believe the Bible because of the other evidences, you know, the prophecy and the, the resurrection thing I can examine all. But the demon possession was just always something that I, I really felt uncomfortable with. I had problems with allowing an evil spirit to get in a person and make that person bad or something like that, you know, and to be possessed by a, a spirit. I just and had hold them accountable for it. Right. And I just had problems with that. It's, it's like you've got a spirit out here that you say, well, this guy was a ranked sinner, but they were all sinners. You know, then why, did they, why didn't they just get in some? And, uh, and the Pharisees, Jesus condemned the Pharisees as, as being the worst sinners around. And yet there were no evil spirits in the Pharisees. You know, that, and yet here were they, and the people that executed him, you know, and, and look at Pilate. He didn't have an, an evil spirit or anything. So if, it, if it's something that could only possess people when they were terrible sinners, then I have problems with all these other terrible sinners that were not possessed, you know, or anything like that. And then if it's something that just could possess a person, I don't know how, like Saul, for example, that is rejected as king and all, I don't know how Saul can be held accountable for being this terrible person if God literally put this evil spirit in him in some way. In other words, there's a literal spirit that got in Saul and made him, made him bad. When some of the accounts of demon possession in the Bible that have accounts of the uh, I come in eight in front of you. Yeah, sure does. And then there's and then any the, kind of and some of the schizophrenia, like the person of the legion, the many personalities. Well we know today that uh, the people that that uh, you know, like even had them on some of the talk shows, some of these individuals that that can change and become one personality right after another, and, and they've identified, uh, well, I, I had one on, uh, I think it was one of those shows, I can forget, I think it was a Winfrey show, but I'm not sure, they had this lady on there that had either nine or 14 or so personalities, and one person would just take over, you know, and of course we, and we recognize that as, an, as a, as a psychological phenomenon, but we know it's all taking place in the human mind. Chuck, you're not hungry? Yeah, I get hungry. Oh, you guys need to get you. You all are trusting. Chuck, all would, uh, I, let me just say one thing. The, I noticed that, um, about that she and he, Kroger and Kroger, both, um, well, they, they have their alternative translations. And then this other guy, Keener and Paul, women and wives, he doesn't necessarily, I mean, he kind of discounts the, the part about being the author of man or originator of man, but he still says that he words, he kind of interprets it like, like um, I do not permit a woman to teach um, a certain thing or in a certain way as opposed to I do not permit a woman to teach. He believes that, that uh, woman is the origin of man. In other words, he's no, saying that what no, was being taught... Not and, Keener, though. All right, Keener, then. They were saying that that was being taught in there. Uh, my problem with their... Uh, I think they had a lot of good information. 
and, and I believe that uh, uh, that based on my understanding now, and I, this is an area where I'm open. It's an area that I'm not concrete in. It's an area where at one time I would have been dogmatic. It's an area that I'm open now, and uh, you know I'm just not concrete. But uh, right now, the uh, truth in my mind is between what they're saying and what we have traditionally practiced. I find, in other words, that that I have problems with a translation that not a single solitary group or individual Greek scholar has ever translated that way before. Not a single solitary one. And they each come from groups where the practice is what they're trying to advocate. And so that I thought the weakness of each presentation was that, uh, and it would be true of any of that type, it was a definitive presentation. In other words, it, it wasn't written as just a study, but he tells you initially he's out to prove this particular point. In other words, they come from a background that does this, and therefore he's out to substantiate it, and so it's like he's dug up all of this information to show, and what he's really saying, it doesn't have to be rendered this way. Well, when it comes to the actual imparting of information, uh, I, the, for some time now, I've had problems with our stand on that in that uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, you know, they could pray and prophesy. Uh, when you go back and read about Deborah, she actually held court and was a judge in Israel and led Israel and led them into battle and all, uh, composed a song, led them in the singing of the song. Miriam was a prophetess, composed a song, led the Israelites in a in the song. Uh, you come to the New Testament, Philip had four daughters that, with the gift of prophecy. Joel said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Uh, Huldah uh, actually conveyed to Josiah uh, that uh, prophecies that led to the reform that took place in Israel and everything. So obviously, it's just a matter of historical fact from the biblical standpoint that there were times when God used women to convey uh, information to men. So I have no problem in that realm. The only possible restriction I can see is that whether they can do anything in such a way as to maintain authority. And, and what they were each arguing for is women in leadership position where they would have authority. All right, That's the part I differ with them 100%. It's it's uh, the teaching thing may the traditional teaching may very definitely reside on just a couple of passages that uh, are there only because churches are being reviewed. But this thing of the man woman relationship is something that's taught all the way through the Bible. You you hit it in Genesis, where right just as surely as it says that man would earn his living by the sweat of his brow, it subjected the the woman uh, to the man, and Paul's use of that, and it's in, in, ten, in 1 Timothy 2, right below that passage, he's using it as backup for what he's commanded, that she should not exercise art. He's using that as backup. And there seems, in Paul's reasoning, he's making a point on the fact that the woman was deceived there, and, and, and that the man sinned, but woman was deceived there, and he's making a point on, on that particular point. And then you've got the, the statement where 
Uh, Peter tells the husbands to dwell with their wives as weaker vessels, pardon me, and warns them against misusing the relationship. And then it, and then you've got a several times where it says wives submit to their husbands and everything. And then you've got the statement in 1 Corinthians 11, God, Christ, man, woman, etc. So I think that is the difference in role is there. And I, I can't, uh, and, and the position of authority, I really have difference with, not just based on the teaching of the Bible, but I really believe my own experience with women is, is, is different from this standpoint of, of uh, many, they're just as intelligent, but I believe women on the whole are definitely more emotional. I, I think they're, they're, uh, I think they tend to be more subjective uh, because of the emotions and all. I believe a woman is equipped by her emotions and her hormones and all to be a helpmeet and to be a mother. And, and the very thing that makes her good in that area gives her weaknesses in the other area. And, and I think that the male by nature is a more dominant uh, person than the, than the female. And I believe when you step right out of the, the us, the human beings, and get into the animal kingdom, you look at all of your, your mammals, and the, the male is dominant. And, uh, the, uh, and, and we take a cattle out here, and we, we castrate that bull to get something that we can control. They don't have to do anything to the, to the, to the females. And all, all the way through, we recognize the male as the more aggressive and dominant form in that, uh, in that animal. And we, and we know all we have to do to change it is to castrate the male and take out those male hormones. And then the male becomes very docile and more like, you know, with feminine characteristics and all. And so, it, it's, in other words, the male hormones don't just equip the man for reproduction in a, in a, in a, in a certain area. They actually, they give him a body that's composed of about 40% more muscle uh, than a woman. Uh, they give him a, a, a demeanor size that is uh, bigger. And they give him a more dominant type personality that all that's within the hormone. So it's, I'm saying that what I see in nature goes along with what I actually see, you know, in those, in those statements. I think that when, when, uh, when Paul refers back to creation order and so forth, I hear a lot of commentators saying that that, that, that makes this argument um, universal or transcultural. And so I see these people trying to show how that's not universal or transcultural. Do you think that, that when he when he refers back to the creation order or um, the creation in in his particular examples like he does in, in Ephesians five and in first Timothy two and also in First Corinthians eleven that, that that makes those uh, a universal uh, application. Well I believe he is acknowledging that there is a universal thing there, and therefore that's why he's willing to respect the cultural symbols and all, because they were in keeping with what was you know universally there. The, in other words, in order to have these symbols, whether it's the long hair 
or the veil or whatever it may be, in order to have them even evolve in the first place, they can, you have to have people thinking that way. And, and when you look at society going all the way back as far as we can take in history back and out, the, the culture, like they're talking about around Ephesus with the, the female deity and all, that is far and away the exception. It's almost an aberration. It's so much the exception to the rule. Uh, the culture of, of all mankind all through history was of male dominance. And it, and it, and it was there, and where you have uh, the matriarch system, or, or female dominance in some sense, it was always an aberration that was something that was separate. You know, and so the only way I can explain that is going back to at one time a central source and truth, and and I look at the other as a perversion, you know, of that of that particular truth, and then it, it spread it spread over the earth, but even the very fact that people who are not religious, their societies are totally dominated by males. Well, how could that be unless it is part? In other words, that you can't say that it's, it's just because of physical strength or anything like that. I mean, bears are, or we'd have to say that bears and, and apes are going to control. That, and they don't. We put bear, bears and apes are stronger than we are, and we lock them up in cages. That, uh, that you have this situation that all these societies all through the centuries and the world, and even the world we live in today, with all our enlightenment, who in the world controls the world today? I mean, in, in, we know it, it is primarily a masculine dominated and, and controlled. I think there, there are certain things that equip the woman to be a mother, both to carry the child and to bring up the child, and to be a helpmate. I think that she has been biologically, by nature, equipped for that role. And what gives her strengths in that role gives her disadvantages in the other roles. Even among men, I think that uh, all men are not equally dominant. Okay, let me, let me go back to my original question. I'm not sure if I made myself clear. Okay, like, 1 Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. And it's like it's two separate thoughts the way I read it. I don't to teach or to have authority over men, but what they're saying is, is that that this is saying I don't permit a woman to teach in a domineering way, or I don't uh -huh. permit a woman to teach uh, a certain thing. So it's a it's a whole different thought. It's not that I do not permit a woman to teach. It's that. She can't teach. Well, teach. What they're so saying, I'm though, on the teach bit, see, I believe it's teach in the sense of exercising authority. Uh, I believe that I don't because want to teach in a domineering way. Let's say that, that uh, it's the first way you word it. I do not permit a woman to teach, period, a man, or to exercise authority over it. That you would have contradictions within the, the Bible itself because there were female prophets who did teach males and you had uh, the, uh, a good example of course the best example is, this is worship right so what people will ask me tomorrow is this is talking about in a, in a, in a church public worship setting okay and so well, uh, 
but still the authority is the key thing. See, I don't see any difference between teaching Greek or uh, one of the books of the Bible. Uh, the, I mean, in other words, we sit in a class being taught by a lady English or Greek or Spanish or math. Uh, and, and so then if, but then can that same woman, for example, teach uh, Bible archaeology if she's an archaeologist? I mean, we would go to we would go to college, and we'll sit in her class as she teaches uh, uh, these other. Well, can can she teach Bible archaeology? Can she teach Mid Eastern history? You know, because most of that is you know history. Well, what do they allow in, in Church of Christ colleges? Well, it's interesting uh, that uh, that my experience was that uh, that women taught like uh, English. Math, history, psychology, sociology, all of those PE instructors, but not, but, I mean, with the girls, no, but I mean, but all of those courses that uh, taught to mixed groups, or even if there's no, but they didn't teach any Bible courses. But I'm saying that, that Bible courses are not just Bible courses. Uh, archaeology uh, is a course within the realm of the Bible. In fact, anybody that majors in Bible is going to take some courses in Bible archaeology. And then you have uh, Mid-Eastern history that uh, you, where you studied the history of Syria and Assyria and Babylon and all like that. Well, then the question is, is it okay for her to teach American history, but she can't teach the history of Israel? You know, and, and then what are the different skills that are involved? All right, and then see the next question is: I does a person who is teaching something are they also exercising authority over the people they're teaching? You see, and I never personally, I never looked at those teachers as exercising any authority over me. All right, I believe she's condemned. I believe what he's saying is in. In that, if that's an accurate rendering, is that she cannot teach in such a way as to exercise authority over men. Well, I believe that is the part that that is condemned. I think that uh, uh, I think the position the position of elder is a position of authority because you make decisions. Really teaching though when you're an elder. Right. I'm saying the elders teach, but I mean, what's an example of of someone teaching? A woman teaching in a way that would exercise authority. Well, when you are telling people to believe certain things, or you're telling them what to do, and they're having to listen to you and carry out uh, what what you actually do, uh, what what you're actually seeing. Jesus spoke with authority. You know, he said, "Do this, etc." You know, and he spoke, and, his, and he acknowledged that he spoke uh, with authority. Uh, the I, I think that uh, in regular teaching, I just uh, I don't see any exercise of authority uh, within the teaching itself. I see conveying information to people or trying to persuade people 
but then they, if you can make up your own mind about it and make a decision, then the other person is not exercising authority over you. Authority is when you tell somebody, when you make the decision, and it's going to be a certain way, then that's, a, that's authority. But other than that, I can't, uh, for example, that uh, when you go back and read about Deborah, it said that, uh, you know, she actually uh, conveyed the information. She led Israel. She was judge. All right. How could you, if that is wrong, how could she be doing that? I mean, you just, uh, the. I know what some people in my class are going to say. Yeah, but that's that's a crazy statement. What if you're talking about if they're talking about something that is eternal truth, then it's either right or wrong. In other words, then then you got to say that. What do you mean? In the Old Testament, it was right for a woman to do that, and it's wrong now. And she did it as a prophet of God. I mean, she was literally doing it as a uh, prophet. But I mean, you just listen to the. The, uh, what she did, uh, in, okay, it says, uh, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapida, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramoth and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. And she sent for Barak, and said, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali, and I will lure Sisera, the commander, with his chariots, and give him into your hands. And Barak said, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I will go with you. But because of the way you are going about this, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Well, obviously, for her to say that, the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman, that was a real put-down to them as men. In fact, remember when they had the battle that this woman, well, uh, another battle there, I'm thinking, the woman 